Nation, talking story with guides and interpreters. I am Tim Merriman, your host, coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. And today, my guest is Helena Vicic from Slovenia, the General Director of Interpret Europe. Well, welcome, Helena. It's really nice to meet you. I uh, have read a fair amount about you in the last few days, and uh I don't think we've ever met in person. I... First of all, uh, thanks for inviting me, team. And it's really the first time I think that we speak. So uh, it's a, a historical moment <laughs> in the relationships between US and Europe. <laughs> I, I have to confess that my wife and I, Lisa Brochu, we watched The Amazing Race and this last two weeks it's been in Slovenia. So we've gotten to see a little bit of your beautiful country. Did you grow up in Slovenia, I presume? Yes, yes, yes. I'm born here and I've been living here for most of my life. So um, I'm rooted very deeply <laughs> in in, uh, in our landscape and countryside, yeah. Um, and I believe you were a history major undergraduate? Yes, uh, it was a history, general history, and then, uh, but I've never worked as a historian. It was a bit of a challenge to um, profile myself and get a job in this field. So I was looking for other opportunities. So for for some time, I worked in tourism and then in on heritage projects. And yeah, and then it, it went down to interpretation and, and this road. You were in a Scottish program for a master's degree? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I signed up for the master's at the UHI, University of Island, Highlands and Islands. This is, I think, the the one of the two uh, master's programs in on interpretation, purely on interpretation. So And was that in person or virtual? Virtual, virtual. Have you been to Scotland? Uh, yes, but for the conference, really, no. okay. <laughs> not for the studies. I said I'm going to go when I uh, finally finish because I haven't finished yet. Um, I still have a thesis to to write up, and um, yeah. You were you were in uh, Bray, Ireland, for a while. Mm -hmm. How did how yes to that? Um, it was in my life before interpret Europe before interpretation. Yeah, well, let's put it frankly, unemployed. It was between two jobs. And I was looking for an opportunity to just go abroad and try something new. So um, at our faculty for tourism, they were offering those exchange programs. And they were mainly <laughs> concentrated to Tenerife, Gran Canaria, <laughs> and such uh, tourist destinations. And I thought, oh, no, that's boring. Uh, I want to try something else, and yeah, I find I found um, an organization in Ireland that uh, took me for a few months. And uh, before this um, internship ended, I they employed me uh, for uh, part time, so I stayed longer than I anticipated. I really like Ireland, the culture, the people there, um, the countryside. It's really beautiful. Uh, but yeah, I came back. <laughs> we went there last year, first time in my life. And uh, like many Americans, I'm part Irish. And, uh, oh, yeah. 
Well, I'm a mutt. I'm a little bit of everything. So, <laughs> but that's one of the bigger segments. So it was interesting to do, go there. And I really enjoyed meeting the people and kind of seeing the landscape. It's a gorgeous island, mm-hmm. beautiful countryside. Did you work as an interpreter before taking the master's degree in interpretation? No. No, no. It all happened in the same year. Um, interpreter of the train, all these, um, yeah, interpreter of courses I signed up for, uh, the master course, everything happened at the same, started um, evolving at the same, in the same year. So I just decided that, um, yeah, at the point I decided I want to work in interpretation, no matter what, even uh, if that's only a hobby, but I really invested a lot in it. Um, like first I needed to do my uh, English, uh, international English uh, certification <laughs> before I could have signed up for any university abroad. And um, yeah, and also then these uh, courses for the guides, for the trainers, um, getting active as a volunteer at Interpret Europe at first. So yeah. I sort of streamlined everything into one t- towards one goal. Yeah. Our joke in the United States is that we get paid in sunsets. Another way of saying that our jobs don't pay enough. <laughs> so we, we enjoy our sunsets so much, our beautiful landscapes, our wonderful terrain that we uh, spend our lives interpreting that that should be enough. And in a silly way it is because I confess I, I worked at jobs that didn't pay very much most of my early career, and I couldn't have imagined leaving them for a better paying job that was in a different field. So I wanted to teach high school biology, I thought, and that was my track. And once I learned you could do that in the out of doors, and better yet, you could actually combine culture and nature, Mm -hmm. uh, I was hooked. I really didn't want to do anything else. I landed in nonprofit work, which I believe you've done. Were you doing consulting uh, after before you took the Interpret Europe job? Uh, yes, before I um, became a director. Uh, for a short while, I've been doing mainly trainings for Interpret Europe as an independent trainer. Um, and yeah, a few jobs as an um, interpretive writer and planner. But I just, you know, barely scratched that surface. I, yeah, it was really then, um, after that, it was impossible to to do my own private business besides. Lisa, my wife, uh, is unique in that she actually went through a bachelor's degree program in interpretation at Texas A&M University, and then began to work with a consulting firm after a short venue <laughs> with a state park as running a visitor center. And she did that most of her career, and I, I find I've done a bit of it with her primarily and find it pretty frustrating, but uh, I, I think I needed more of an organization around me than uh, you kind of work by yourself a lot as a consultant. How did you get into training who were your trainers that got you into it who trained you at interpret europe it was um so i'm the second generation of trainers trained by valia stereotti and torsten ludwig uh, who were at the time uh, 
yeah, the only trainers <laughs> at Interpret Europe. Um, and yeah, it was um, it was a good uh, good course. It it changed changed me my life the way I yeah the course of action. I have to tell a Torsten Ludwig story. Uh, some twenty five years ago, our office was in a little Victorian house in Fort Collins, Colorado, the National Association for Interpretation. And a young man showed up on the uh, at the front door with a backpack and said, I'm Torsten Ludwig. I'm from Germany. And I work in interpretation. And I invited him home to dinner. He, I said, where are you staying tonight? He says, oh, I have a little tent. I'll, I'll hike out. And I said, you're backpacking across the Western U.S.? I, oh, yeah. And uh, I said, well, would you mind staying the night and we'll just talk and enjoy the evening? And he said, no, I'll do that. I'm willing to have a bed in the shower. So uh, we ended up playing music all evening. I, I play mandolin. He's a great singer and guitar player. And I'm sure you've heard that before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was terrific. And then we saw him again. We did a an interpretive planning course at Omaha Beach in uh, Normandy, France. And mm -hmm. he and Value both attended that. And it was a wonderful opportunity to reconnect. And so mm -hmm. we think the world of both of them, they they really have, are doing and have done amazing things. So um, it's nice to meet the next generation of leadership. In, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They are amazing both. When you were saying, you just, since you're mentioning um, the guitar and music, um, last week we had a trainer's course the next generation of trainers in, at Interpret Europe and yeah, Vali and Thorsten were both there. And we started the every day in the morning with a song. Of course, Thorsten played the guitar and uh, and we also finished every day with singing um, at the table. And yeah, it was really nice. Well, I've never forgotten his stories because he was in Boy Scouts as a young man mm. and they traveled Europe singing songs, learning the folk songs of every different country. And I, I just, I, I've been a folk musician uh, fan for 55 years. And uh, mm -hmm. so it, it was exciting to, to meet him. And, and of course, he's oh. just a great personality. Um, yeah. Are you still training as general director of? Uh, well, just occasionally. Last year, I had um, the last course for the planners, and um, that's it. We're still struggling with the homework, though. <laughs> so I still have work with that course from a year and a half ago. <laughs> you're you're the operations manager for Interpret Europe. That includes mm -hmm. keeping track of the membership, doing the marketing and promotion. Yeah, yeah. Fortunately, I have... Um, a couple of um, officers that take care of those basic administration stuff. Um, we have um, coordinators that take care of um, particular sub subject areas or let's say ma managing areas as well. We have managing coordinators and then subject coordinators and then country coordinators. And those managing coordinators are really supportive and helpful to help managing the organization like um, um, preparing the newsletters, dealing with all the training administration and development. Um, some areas are really taken good care of. 
Um, whereas, yeah, but there's still a lot that is on my desk and uh, I hope there will come the day when, you know, we have more people, project managers, all sorts of <laughs> um, different stuff around. I got involved in our professional association 49 years ago, 1974. And back then, it was the Association of Interpretive Naturalists. It was 900 members. We had a part-time office manager and um, that was it. And I ended up becoming president of the association in a few years later. And then I went to the First World Heritage Conference in Banff, Canada with president of the Western Interpreters Association. They also had about 900 members. And we spent, we agreed to spend three years consolidating the two groups. And when we hit that 2000 members number, it gave us the impetus to pay an executive director to have a an office manager that would do the membership and stuff. And then when I took over as executive director in 95, I had a staff of two, me and an office person. Mm -hmm. And when I left, it was 10, and we'd quadrupled the budget from half a million a year to 2 million a year. What do you enjoy most about what you're doing in your work? Um, I I think it's this international character of the work. Um, and yeah, being in touch with so many different people from so many different backgrounds, cultures, countries, um, and and doing something together with people that care, that they want to do something. They they are active and inspiring. So I feel this is the most rewarding part of the job. Um, when you achieve something together, when you bring people, connect people, and um, this role I enjoy mo most, that I'm liaiser between you know different countries, different people bringing them together so that they can continue with something else. <laughs> yeah. Obviously speak your native language. Is that Slovenian mm -hmm. and English perfectly? Uh, oh, you, thanks. Yeah. Do you speak other languages? Um, I, well, I learned a lot of them <laughs> from Latin, Italian, German, but yeah, it's, um, what I don't use, it just, uh, you know, <laughs> goes leaves my head um i do speak uh, like very basic uh basic um level i would say more understanding than speaking um but yeah there are other like the slovenia was part of ex-yugoslavia and we all learned something that was called serbo-croatian at that time a blend of those western balkan languages so this is still that i can fluently speak which helps in the collaboration with uh, these countries. I think I read on your website that you have members in 57 countries. Is that mm -hmm. accurate? Yeah, thereabouts. Like we, the, the, the figure is constantly changing, but we are at about um, eight to, yeah, over, over 800 members from more than 50 countries. Let's put it that way. That's amazing. Yeah, it we is. We grew to have members in about 30 countries at NAI, and understand they're still about the same. But of course, the United States is distant from 
Europe, the Middle East, a lot of the Asia. And uh, you probably also have members from other continents, right? Yeah, it tends to be the ones that have uh, developed associations like AHI folks. Some of them in mm -hmm. uh, Great Britain belong to mm -hmm. NAI. Same with Australian Association. Mm -hmm. There's a, just a smattering of folks from countries where they have gotten acquainted with uh, NAI through Peace Corps or some other experience. Lisa and I continue to teach the Certified Interpretive Guide course virtually. In truth, we we like face-to-face -face courses and didn't really want it to go virtual, and the pandemic kind of handed us all a different ballgame. So you're staying in the online world and uh, with the courses? I am, and I, I find it hard to give it up because if I quit teaching the virtual course, I don't really have any audience here to teach it to in Hawaii. And um, even the virtual course for Hawaiians is a value because it would be a, an expensive event for mm -hmm. someone to come over and spend seven or eight days here. This is a very expensive location to have a vacation rental or whatever. And mm -hmm. so we've had people from uh, Russia, Italy, Philippines, uh, UK in our virtual CIG class. So it's, mm -hmm. been, it's been fun. And you're teaching a certified interpretive guide credential through Interpret Europe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, we are licensed trainers and we're doing it, but um, there's a slight difference. We are not, uh, let's say, allowed to go online. I mean, there's a general policy at Interpret Europe that courses need to be face-to-face. -face. Um, yeah, it's it's also less difficult for, for us in Europe to organize it face-to-face. But it's, uh, yeah, you see yourself, right? It's There are disadvantages and advantages. And um, um, we felt that it would be too big of a loss uh, with going online uh, in the quality, experiential learning, um, getting people in exchange more freely, uh, being in touch with real objects, real phenomena. Uh, so... I don't know. We 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 are still insisting <laughs> in this, but let's see. I mean, what time brings? But I still think face to face is better. And uh, yeah, bravo for holding the line on that and and staying with it. Uh, I would also suggest that Europe has a wonderful uh, train system and other modes of transportation. I you know we pretty much have to get on a plane to get anywhere. I, I wish we had better regional transportation that would make it easier for people to get to regional mm -hmm. training and conferences. And we, we just don't have it. And it doesn't seem we're going to invest in it. So what kind of changes do you see going on in your marketplace and in your professional network? In Europe, we're still struggling with explaining what interpretation is to our target groups. Let's. I, I would say there's, there's still this misconception in persisting of what what interpretation is um that this is a separate um uh discipline that people get trained for or even uh, study for 
there it's it's often mixed with uh, with approaches such as storytelling and you know <laughs> interchangingly used so in a way in a way we we still have a lot of um, work to do here in Europe it's also because the continent is fragmented there is no one political system or uh, policy culture policy na natural heritage policy that would um, of course, there is a common European, but then countries do it, uh, you know, in their own way. We need to address all these different audiences in different circumstances. Whereas this is, in a way, also an advantage because the, the fragmentation on those different various countries, because you can, for, for a more guerrilla approach, you know, um, we tend to appoint coordinators and have representatives in each country, which most um, know best what what uh, what is the situation in the country and what approach should we undertake. Yeah, it requires some flexibility. And mostly I can speak for Interpret Europe Network because um, I must confess I have a bit limited view on what is going outside of our network. But what we're, because we were investing so much in, in the training in the courses, um, especially in the guide course, which is the um, most successful course, um, we are gaining on this uh, constituency, a part of the constituency. So guides, uh, tourism, with members with tourism background. Um, and so we, we are now strategically turning towards planners. Um, so that we really take uh, take care of them as well, provide them uh, with opportunities for exchange and networking. Um, so yeah, just yesterday we had the first meeting of interpretive planners um, where we gathered all these um, experts thinking, um, how can we develop interpretive planning in Europe? How What can we do at Interpretive Europe for that? It helped us in the United States that National Park Service was a leader in interpretation, and they are who uh, got Freeman Tilden to write the book, Interpreting Our Heritage, and that Interpreting Our Heritage has been a rudder, 65-year kind of beacon uh, for us to look back on, and it got the other federal agencies to look seriously at interpretation, but I always feel like we failed in tourism because tourism guides too often are what I hear as a term used in uh, World Heritage Sites and they're, they're narrators, lecturers. And I part of the my characterization when I'm talking to somebody that doesn't know what interpretation is, they go, well, what's the difference? And I say, well, traditional guiding was a guide telling you things. I say a good interpretation is a conversation. Mm -hmm. I'm asking okay. you questions. I'm finding out what you're interested in. Mm -hmm. I'm customizing what I say to, to your background, your interests, your reason for showing up where you are. And um, a lot of tourism guiding I see today still in the United States is lecturing. Is we we On the Hawaiian Islands, we have these hundred thousand dollar Mercedes Sprinter vans that hold 15 people and the guide's got a microphone and they talk continuously while they drive. And uh, to me, I think that's boring. I certainly don't think yeah. it's custom. 
You're not asking your audience what they want. But it's interesting what, what since you're mentioning this, I would add uh, to it. When when I was guy, um, still working as a guide, as a student, I was guiding, and we noticed the difference between different audience uh, visitors, visitor groups. Uh, we were also getting visitors from U.S. USA, and they really were seeking conversation, a dialogue. So they and they were reinforcing it, and of course we enjoyed it very much. But it was not a standard in Europe, you know, to get into exchange with with your visitors. And uh, one of the difficulties that I think our interpreters out there in Europe are facing is that people are not used to this approach. Um, you really need to tease out of your visitors whatever you want to uh, talk uh, talk about with them. So I guess it's, I don't know, what, what why is it so? Is it down to our school system? You know, we were used to just listen and memorize and repeat <laughs> in the schools. Um, but yeah, uh, okay, this is now changing, thank God. Um, but there are differences. And obviously, uh, it's no surprise that interpretation is coming from the USA. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that triggers a lot of different stories for me because we we went to China 10 different times doing interpretive training and planning. And we were speaking at the Beijing Botanical Garden to about 125 guides and uh, interpreters and and we asked them at some point, are you enjoying this? Is, is this a good presentation for you? And they said, oh, yeah, we're fascinated. We're not, you ask us questions. We hold up our hand and kind of vote on what we believe or what we think. And we're not used to that. We're used to just sitting and taking notes and listening. And that interactivity, you know, I, I don't think always exists in the United States, but it's pretty common. When you talk to people in tourism, and I've taught uh, hospitality and tourism for uh, six or seven years in the University of Hawaii system in the community colleges here. In tourism, you're always saying we want return visits. We want good buzz on social media. Uh, we want people to stay longer. We want them more deeply connected to the location. You don't really want visitors to just be been there, done that. And yet a lot of visitor experiences are been there, done that experiences. You you aren't going to go back. You don't get mm -hmm. deeper. So what's your next event? What What is uh, your next conference? Where is it going to be located? In Slovenia. <laughs> in Slovenia. When? In March. Oh, no. In uh... So 21st to 24th of March. Yeah. I've made a commitment to try to get back to an Interpret Europe meeting. Uh, Lisa and I would love to do that, but uh, we will be in Tanzania those dates. Mm -hmm. In Slovenia uh, in March, how many people do you tend to get at a meeting like that? Um, we are usually at about 150, 60, um, but we'll see. It's not long ago since we had a conference in Romania. It was in May. And so it's, it will be less than one year after that we are, we're having another conference. 
but um yeah i i think it's gonna be good are you are you getting a lot of people taking your certified interpretive guide course yeah now, my experience yeah. is that's going to grow your membership and attendance and events yeah. tremendously yeah well basically this was a strategic decision also that um when when uh yeah, that that we are mainly promoting the guide course, and it really in, in some countries uh, we managed to streamline it uh, in a way, if that's a correct word. Um, and I'm not really sure how this happened. I I guess with with the trainers, and they managed to promote it well, also through the um, European Union funding mechanisms that that invest a lot into the development of culture and tourism and capacity building is a you know a big a big theme um and so such such a course was really welcome and uh, well accepted by the organizers by those who write projects um and so i don't know it I guess a few factors um, overlapped and merged for the success. Uh, not in all the countries, though. How many hours are in your CIG course? Uh, 40 hours. 40 hours. hours 40 is the... hours, and then there's a homework uh, to, to, to deliver in a due time. Yeah. Yours is broader, is deeper than ours. Ours is 32 hours. Mm -hmm. uh, and there is some homework, but it's not extensive. It's primarily preparing to give a 10-minute thematic and interpretive presentation. So I guess it's a bit more comprehensive um, in our case. Um, well, it's a, it's they need to uh, they need to develop a thematic um, an interpretive walk consisting of at least four uh, sites or spots. So a guided activity. Yes, yes, yeah. Some some do that, some do not. We get such a diverse audience. Uh, a yeah. lot of a lot of our interpreters are not really guiding, kind of doing front desk interpretation with uh, an audience at a museum or mm -hmm. a zoo mm -hmm. or an aquarium. Do you get a lot of docents and amateurs yeah. and volunteers? Yeah, indeed. We also get some like office people, managers who want to understand how interpretation works because there are not a lot of there's not a lot of other opportunities out there where they could uh, learn that. So, yeah, it's really a diverse uh, group usually. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with me today, Elena. Please uh Keep in touch and let us know if you ever come to Hawaii. We would love to visit with you here on the Big Island. Yeah, I would love I would love to uh, come, Thane. So um, thanks so much for inviting me, and I hope we meet each other in person next time. I quite agree. <laughs> thanks for joining Helena and I today on Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters. Two weeks from Friday. December 15th, that would be December 29th, I will have as my guest Pete Devine, an old friend, being the resident naturalist with Yosemite Conservancy. So join Pete and I in two weeks. Thanks again to Mark Stoffel for use of his beautiful mandolin music, this time Buckminster Waltz from his Coffee and Cake album. Have a wonderful week. <laughs>